0: You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Growing pain. The source and location of the pain can be vague and may lead someone down the wrong path to diagnosis and treatment. Most of us in sports medicine have heard of a sports hernia. It's a source of groin pain, but can be somewhat of a diagnostic challenge. Today on the podcast, we will cover the so-called sports hernia by a national expert on this topic. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Michael Brunt. Dr. Brunt is the Pruitt Professor of Surgery and Section Chief of Minimally Invasive Surgery at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. He is past president of the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons, past president of the Central Surgical Association, and is current president of the Fellowship Council overseeing advanced GI surgical fellowship training. Dr. Brunt has over 150 peer-reviewed publications in 95 chapters and review articles and articles in over 20 movies, including a documentary film he produced and directed on the life of George Bursey, the father of laparoscopy. Clinical and research interests are in clinical outcome studies and minimally invasive surgery, complex hiatal hernias, and reoperative foregut surgery, safety and cholecystectomy, adrenalectomy, sports hernias, and surgical education. A significant part of his practice involves treating collegiate and professional athletes with sports-related groin injuries from across the U.S. and Canada. He has received the Distinguished Clinician Award from the Washington University School of Medicine, the Philip J. Wolfson Outstanding Teacher Award from the Association for Surgical Education, the Lifetime Achievement Award from Barnes Jewish Hospital, and the Distinguished Alumnus Award from Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the podcast, Mike.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for that very kind introduction.
0: You are certainly well accomplished and glad to know you as a colleague. And before we get started on the sports hernia topic, I'd love to learn a little bit more about these movies you produce. That was something I was not aware that you were involved with movies and documentaries.
1: I sort of got started with videos back in the, in the 1990s when the laparoscopic revolution hit and uh, suddenly we were able to record videos of operative procedures, which had not been very easy to do. So I submitted various videos to meetings over the years. And then I got involved in a Sage's Grand Rounds project, which was filmed and recorded professionally producing speaker topics on various content in milling invasive surgery. And then a SAGES president asked me to do a video to celebrate the life of George Bercy just after he turned 90. And that was in 2013. It was about a one-year project. And as I started talking with him and his wife, I realized this is not just a story about surgery and laparoscopy. It's really an amazing life story. George Bercy survived labor camps in World War II. He escaped from communist Hungary in 1956 after the revolution and then moved to Australia, not speaking a word of English, and then went on to change the course of surgical history with his work in the field of laparoscopic surgery. This video documentary is about his life. It's called Trials, Triumphs, Innovations. It's a video that not just surgeons or physicians, but others can enjoy as well, and you can access it online via YouTube. I would oh, encourage great. you to take a look at it, and it's an amazing story. He turned 101 earlier this year. He still goes to the office two days a week, still <laughs> thinking about surgical problems. We chat every couple, three weeks about issues around safety and cholecystectomy. So he's an amazing person.
0: That's awesome. I will make sure that we have a link in our show notes to that video. So if anybody is interested in pursuing that and taking a look at it, I will definitely take a look at it. I love the history of medicine in, in all aspects, and so that that sounds very intriguing to me. Let's talk about sports hernias. You and I both know we get a lot of athletes who come in with groin pain, and there is a large differential diagnosis for that, both from an orthopedic standpoint, but even from a GI and GU standpoint. From my basis, sports hernias are far from the most common cause of groin pain for me. You know, we see muscle strains, we see labral tears in the hip, avulsion fractures in our adolescent athletes, various stress fractures around the hips and pelvis, and I'm sure for you, traditional hernias are much more common than in the non-athlete population as far as what you see, but. One of the issues is the name of this problem. And it goes by several names, sports hernia probably being the least descriptive, at least in my vision, it is. Let's touch first on just the various names of this problem has been given and, and what your personal preference may be.
1: Yeah, you know, I think you're exactly right. And, and what you said earlier about this not being a real common problem is exactly correct. Most athletic groin injuries are muscular strains or tendon strains, and they resolve with conservative management. So this is really a subset of groin injuries. I think it, Came known as sports hernia, sportsman's hernia, because that's something that the lay public could sort of relate to, because it is in that anatomic region of the body where conventional inguinal hernias occur, and it's, a, and it's an activity-related problem. It's not something that people have pain with when they're at rest or sedentary. It's really at more of the higher-end levels of sports. So from the standpoint of what it communicates to the public, I think it, it makes sense, but it's not actually a true hernia. In the sense that there's something pushing up through a defect in the abdominal wall. One of the terms that I think is probably anatomically very accurate is athletic pubalgia, meaning athletic related pain around the pubis region and the pelvis. Problem with that is that that's something that's a bit arcane in terms of the lay <laughs> public. And so, more recently, the term core muscle injury has been popularized by Bill Myers in Philadelphia. And it is a part of the abdominal and groin pelvic core. But the core is such a huge area. It's also not very anatomically discreet. The other term that I tend to use oftentimes is inguinal disruption. And that was a phrase that was promoted by the British Hernia Society in the consensus conference that they had. So the terminology is a part of the confusion. Um, and I think the important aspect is it's athletic-related groin pain.
0: It's one of those that you can throw a whole bunch of labels on it. And, and I agree with you. Athletic pubalgia. is kind of, I mean, it's a generic kind of term. I mean, it just it kind of It can encompass all sorts of different things, obviously, but you're evaluating an athlete who's been sent to you for a possible sports hernia. So when you see that person, what's your history taking? What what do you ask these patients about that may may put you down that pathway or may sway away from the sports hernia diagnosis?
1: I think several things. One is the onset. How long have they had it? A lot of the athletes I see, they've been dealing with joint pain issues for several months and they haven't been able to get over it. Was this an acute episode or did this come on gradually? And actually, one of the interesting things about this condition is most of the time, the onset is relatively insidious. There's not an acute precipitating event. There certainly can be, but most of the times there's not. They got sore after, a, after the next day after a game. It just gradually progressed, and it just wouldn't go away. And the second important part of the history is that it tends to occur more at the extremes of athletic exertion. So sudden starts and stops, deceleration movements, uh, turns. Pushing off hard and hockey players. I see a lot of athletes with, who play ice hockey with this. Those first two or three steps they take to make those explosive movements. And the problem is for a, an elite athlete, that's oftentimes the difference between success and failure. And so it really limits their success on the ice. They may also have symptoms with coughing or sneezing at that lower abdominal insertion site right next to the pubis, getting in and out of bed or getting in and out of a car and that sort of thing. If somebody comes in and they have pain mostly sitting, That's not the athletic pubalgia, sports hernia type injury. That's just not typical at all for this. And you have to think about other things like hip pathology and that sort of thing.
0: When you're seeing these athletes, obviously we talk about hockey. You're one of our team physicians that works with us with the St. Louis Blues. Hockey, we see a fair amount of these, but other sports that you tend to see athletes that this tends to be a problem in?
1: Yeah. Besides hockey, soccer and American football, it's less common in baseball and basketball, I think related to the nature of the sports and the type activities. Most time we see it in elite level athletes, typically college and pro, but we do see some in high school athletes. We also some elite level recreational athletes, particularly like marathoners, ultra marathoners, and that sort
0: of thing. Obviously, we want to couple our history with a good physical exam. So it's hard, obviously, on a podcast where we're, we're just doing audio as far as going through a physical exam, but kind of touching base as far as or just kind of going through the process of what you would do for a physical exam that may sway you again one way towards the other as far as sports hernia or not.
1: Well, the first thing I do is to check for a conventional inguinal hernia. So you're going to examine the the groin and angular regions. And then next, you want to put the patient through some resisted movements. So we'll have them do a resisted sit-up and trunk rotation both ways, usually with palpating down around the pubis and, and inguinal canal region. It's really important to do a good hip exam. I'm a general surgeon. I do a lot of hernia surgery. I had to learn how to do a decent hip exam to rule that out because not all the patients come from a sports orthopedist or hip orthopedist. And then you need to do testing in the in the upper thigh musculature, hip flexors, adductor region, sometimes hamstrings abductors because oftentimes those are in part of the symptom complex that the athlete has
0: you know I, I've actually used that resisted sit up a lot and I find that tends to sway me a little bit more I tend to find more of the athletes that I've seen who who do eventually wind up being diagnosed ultimately with a sports hernia whether it's on imaging or through consulting with someone like you that tends to be one of those at those exam findings that some seem to be a little bit higher is there any I mean, is there I haven't seen any research that suggests that there's one exam test or or certain types of exams that may be a little bit more sensitive and specific than others. Have you that you find that is better well we've we just
1: uh, looked at our our series of approximately four hundred patients and tenderness in that distal lateral rectus, medial inguinal floor insertion site that's one the discomfort with resisted movements, the sit up and trunk rotation and this one's a bit more subtle, but doing lots and lots of hernia exams, oftentimes, I feel like there's a weakness that is present in that floor. They just don't have the normal substance. And that's probably a part of the pain pathway is that they're weak on their abdominal side and relatively strong and sometimes tight on the adductor and hip flexor side. And so that creates an imbalance across the pubis and pain. But that relative weakness without an actually overt hernia protrusion is I think one of the telltale signs on physical exam. But it's a little bit of a subtle finding and probably something that you know, hernia surgeon would be most tuned into.
0: I was going to say, you know, from from my standpoint, as as someone who does just, you know, general sports medicine, I don't know that I would be as attuned to picking up that weakness in the floor. Is there a way you can to kind of describe that to us? I mean, obviously, we're not going to figure that out for and be experts on that just through this podcast for that. But, but what exactly do you go through as far yeah. as kind of assessing for that?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's usually done with them supine, and it feels like there's a little bit of a step off, if you will, off the lateral rectus muscle right there at the pubis and inguinal ligament. And they're just like there's a little bit of a gap there is probably the best way that I can describe it, short of demonstrating it to you. Yeah. If you really want to hone in on the classic symptom and area of of findings on exam for an athlete with a sports hernia or a classic core muscle injury, it's right at that distal lower rectus, lateral rectus insertion, pubis medial inguinal floor area. That's classically where their symptoms are primarily focused. There's obviously some variation, but that's the area that should really alert you to this possible
0: diagnosis. So we've done history and physical exam. Where do you go from there as far as imaging? Do you have a preferred imaging technique? Do you have preferred studies that you like to do? Obviously, we mentioned the hip. So a lot of times when they're coming into our office with groin pain as as sports medicine professionals, we're going to get x-rays of the hip and pelvis and looking for signs of hip impingement, hip osteoarthritis in our older individuals, those types of things. But uh, obviously, most of the time, if they're coming from my office, they've come probably with an x-ray, maybe an MRI, most likely as well, for those of us that are a little bit more in tune to this diagnosis. But what what do you like to do if you see these patients?
1: Most of these referrals that I get do come with imaging. Our preferred imaging modality is a pelvic MRI. If I see someone primarily, unless I'm concerned specifically about their hip, I usually don't do plain films. I think they're pretty low yield, but a pelvic MRI. And there's specific sequences that they do where they really core in around the pelvis and do coronal, sagittals, and axial oblique sequences delineate that. And there are a number of findings that you can see. One of the most common is just parasymphecyl pubis edema. It's very typical. There can be a bit of a a cleft uh, there at the fibrocartilage plate around the pubis. And then rectus or adductor or a combination of poneurosis tears be one of the most specific findings that we see on MRI. I'll also add that I, I think the MRI is important to exclude other things like pubic stress fracture and hip pathology particularly arthritis, labral tears, femoroacetabular impingement. Now, having said that, and a lot of athletes have been playing their sport for a long time, it's not uncommon to see a small incidental labral tear. So that's why the hip exam is so important. Uh, but those are some of the other findings that you can see on MRI. There's some groups that like dynamic ultrasound testing. We haven't used that routinely in our practice. It's a little bit subjective. And one of the challenges is it's really... Only the person who's doing the exam can really interpret the images because you have to be doing it real time. So, But that is another modality that has been used in certain circumstances. And the other downside of the ultrasound, in my view, is you don't get all the information about the other musculoskeletal structures around the pelvis.
0: And I think that's an important point when you mentioned with the MRI we, that we have those specific sequences, so if I'm worried about a sports hernia, I'm actually going to order my hip or pelvis MRI with the sports hernia protocol. Fortunately, we have here at Washington University that we can we can do, so that's something that to talk about with your radiologist or wherever you may be when you're looking at those things about having specific protocols that look specifically for the sports hernia, because you, you, you certainly may miss it if you're not specifically looking for it on a typical pelvic or hip MRI, and really, it probably has to be the pelvic MRI. I'm assuming from your standpoint.
1: Right, right. Yeah, sometimes we'll see things on a hip MRI, but oftentimes the images that we get from outside don't have all the sequences and so it ends up having to be repeated. The other aspect of that that I would emphasize is it really helps having a group of a core of musculoskeletal radiologists that are tuned into this because sometimes the findings can be a little bit subtle. I've certainly learned a lot about the imaging and can, at a low level, read some of these films. But it, it, it's really a part of the partnership to have a good musculoskeletal radiology group if this is something that you're going to be
0: getting into on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. But once you've confirmed that the problem is a sports hernia, where would you go from there as far as the recommendations to an athlete as far as treatment and what you're going to do?
1: This is where a lot of kind of clinical judgment comes into the piece because there are some athletes who have an injury But their symptoms are relatively mild, and perhaps the exam and imaging findings are mild. And in some of those cases, we try to manage those conservatively. I think it's important to recognize that adductor groin injuries are a big part of this equation. We probably see more adductor muscle strains than anything else. And the vast majority of time, we really try to manage those conservatively. So I think having really good athletic based physical therapy and a rehab program that that provides stabilization of the abdominal side, the abdominal core, and balance and strength and flexibility in the lower body's key. So some of these really low-level injuries, especially in recreational athletes or really young athletes, we'll try to get them through this with conservative management. The same holds for an elite athlete that's in the middle or late in the season. You try to get them through the season and then maybe deal with it in the off season. For athletes who failed six to eight weeks of conservative treatment, Oftentimes, it's been a lot longer than that, and they have the appropriate history exam and supporting imaging findings, then that's the situation in which surgical treatment is indicated. There are a variety of surgical approaches. There's no consensus about this. There are very strong opinions about a given approach and what's best or not. I have a little bit of an individualized approach, but for the most part, I do an open inguinal floor repair, and I use a lightweight, partially absorbable tension-free mesh that provides strength and support and stability across the inguinal region and lower distal rectus insertion at the pubis, and, and sort of restores that alignment and balance across the pelvic core. There are some groups primarily in Europe that do laparoscopic posterior mesh repairs, Anecdotally, there's appears to be a little bit higher failure rate with some of those, and I'm not convinced it addresses all the pathology. And then there's a group of advocates for primary suture-based repair. I think a part of the challenge with that approach is, is doing it in a non-tension-free manner. And basically all hernia surgery over the last 25 years has evolved in adults, at least to tension-free mesh repairs. So I tend to reserve the primary tissue repairs for female athletes and, and occasional individual that that has relatively mild. Find this when you get to their floor in order to avoid creating tension across that repair site.
0: I can touching a little bit on the, the non-operative side of this, if you're going to recommend a conservative approach, I know you've worked quite a bit with our head athletic trainer, Ray Borelli, coming up with some types of protocols for rehab. Give us a little kind of flavor of what that may be as far as what typically Ray has kind of suggested as far as doing types of rehab for sports hernias.
1: Ray has put together a very uh, detailed uh, rehab protocol that we use in our athletes. It's a series of phases that they go through over about a six-week timeline. It can be elongated as need be. And it basically involves a series of progressive exercises that build on restoring alignment, stabilizing the, uh, the core and uh, providing that strength and, and flexibility and balance in the lower body. You start out with uh, kind of low-level cardio activities, structured walking, backward walking, spinning, and then usually by three weeks or so, like to get the athlete into some light, low-level, sport specific type moves. I think one of the keys is to get enough sport specific activity in before you resume practice or play. And it's just a series of progression through resistance and weight training and uh, core stabilization. That's a part of the rehab. I think it's it's also what's been incredibly invaluable to me in my practice is to have a a soft tissue guru that you can work with. And I'm fortunate to partner with Dr. Michael Murphy, who's a sports chiropractor, works with the Blues and consults with the Cardinals. And there are a number of athletes that I see. I don't think they have a, a direct indication for surgery. And I send them to Murph and uh, does some of his magical deep tissue work and gets them back to athletics. So I think that's really an important part, wherever you are in your area, to have kind of a go-to person that can do some of that directed deep tissue work that can really help some of these athletes get over this, particularly for the hip flexor abductor side injuries.
0: Yeah, I joke with my patients, I, I refer to Dr. Murphy as the man with the magic hands. So you mentioned the That's magic right. in there too. So yes. uh, he he is uh, he's yeah. definitely a guru in soft tissue release, no question about that. And he's been extremely valuable to our professional athletes. And obviously, lots of my patients also who aren't professional athletes as well, because I've I've utilized him a lot for that. So I I wholeheartedly endorse Dr. Murphy have to have him on one of these times to talk about just what he does, but obviously that's more of a hands-on thing. So harder always to translate in a podcast, (laughs) you know, what expectations do you give athletes post-operatively for recovery and their expectations for return to sports? If they have got to the surgical part of this,
1: that's a really important question. And that's, that's true of anything we do in surgery is setting expectations about what's going to happen afterwards. Now, first of all, I tell them you're going to be pretty sore for the first four or five days. There are things that we do to try to mitigate that early postoperative discomfort, but there's, that's, that's just a, a part of the pathway. That the rehab is is a series of phases and structured and that you progress according to your comfort level. That there may be some ups and downs and occasional little setbacks where you pull back. They really need to be committed to a maintenance program when they get back into sport. It doesn't end once they've finished the rehab. They really need a maintenance program for the coming season, especially for the first two to three months back in. And it's not unusual to feel a little bit of something, whether it's some tightness or a little bit of discomfort. I mean, they're virtually all significantly better. And I've heard many times say, you know, I still feel a little something, I can do what I need to do and, and I can be effective. And it might be three or four months down the road before all of that kind of eventually completely dissipates. So I think just recognizing that there may be a little bump in the road here or there, but the expectation is if they do the work, they do the rehab, and they stay with the program, they should have a good outcome.
0: You've had extensive experience treating this problem at Washington University. When I've heard you speak on this topic, and you've spoken at my my sports medicine conference a couple times on this, and you've relayed what you found over the years, I, I think our listeners would appreciate getting an idea of what you've discovered with the large number of patients you've treated in your career for this problem. Can you tell us a little bit about your findings of your your cohort of uh, surgical patients?
1: Probably about over two-thirds of them are professional or collegiate uh, athletes. The average duration of symptoms prior to coming to surgical repair, if you look at the overall group, is in about the six-month range. So oftentimes, they've had these symptoms for quite a long time. It's a a selective approach uh, to operation. I don't operate on the vast majority of of people that I see with groin pain. And the successful return to sport should be in the 90% range or more. One thing that I haven't mentioned is there are some athletes who have chronic adductor tendinopathy or tendinitis and tension in the adductor compartment that we just can't get them through it with conservative measures. And so in some cases, there will be an adductor release component that's done surgically as well.
0: Well, we like to end our podcast with something we call the Pearl of the Podcast, and it's our little nugget of information that you feel may be a good teaching point or important take point about this topic. So, Mike, what is your Pearl of the Podcast?
1: I think number one is this really is a condition that takes a multidisciplinary approach. It involves the sports orthopedist or sports medicine physician. It involves physical therapists and athletic trainers, chiropractors. It involves a surgeon that does more than just hernia surgery, but really commits to understanding this problem, and then a good solid rehab program for return to sport afterwards. So that's more than one just little item, but I, I kind of pull that all into, uh, it, it really is more than one thing. It's it's all of those together that I think really will give the athlete the best opportunity to successful return to sport.
0: We're all good with string of pearls here, so it works for me too. <laughs> I'd like to thank Dr. Michael Brunt for sharing his time and expertise with us today on this topic. Groin pain in an athlete can be somewhat of a nebulous problem, and the topic of sports hernias, I think, can be somewhat misunderstood, so I hope this has brought some clarity to our listeners. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can also leave us feedback or some suggestions at the same website, and there's been an update to the website, so it makes it very accessible and convenient form to fill out for us, and we truly love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter at PeteSportsSpot and tell your friends about us. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at PediatricSportsMedicinePodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.